Hey, thanks for being here this morning. For some of you who are guests or watching online, my name is Steve, and along with Pastor Lauren, who was up here earlier, uh, we are pastors here at the church. What a cool Sunday. There are a few things that the New Testament says, like, you need to make a regular part of when you gather together. One of those is baptism. That like, should be happening pretty regularly as people come to know the Lord and then identify with the body of Christ. Communion, where we regularly remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so those are called the two ordinances of the local church, in Baptist theology anyway. And we got to practice both of those today. And then the New Testament is really clear that when we gather together, we open God's Word together. So I get to be part of all three of those pieces today. So you might have a terrible day. It's an awesome day for me. So thank you for being here and being part of my great day. Open your Bibles. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. Uh, we're doing this series on the parables. For me, it's been uh, just good to hear some of Jesus' teaching and the way that Jesus teaches, the way that he tells these short stories uh, to illustrate shocking spiritual truth and to dig into them and, and just to really see what they're all about. And so today we're going to look at a very familiar passage, Luke 14, 25 through 33, um, and we're going to talk about like what it costs to follow Jesus. And so as you think about the cost of things. Some of you remember uh, TV infomercials from the 1980s and 1990s. Y'all remember some of those TV infomercials, right? Uh, OxyClean, ring a bell, anybody? Right? Uh, the Ginsu knives. You guys remember the Ginsu knives? Okay, we've got the, the miracle blades at home. Someone gave them to us for our wedding, and they're still cutting stuff, man. But remember the miracle blades? It was like uh, you can cut through shoe leather, and then you can cut through a copper pipe. Because that's what people use steak knives for, right? You cut through shoe leather, cut through the uh, copper pipe, you can cut through a nail, and then you take a watermelon, you throw it up in the air, and you can slice through it like a sword. Because, I mean, people were doing that all the time with steak knives and bread knives and stuff like that. And you remember that they would, like, sell that by saying, like, you get 17 steak knives, and you get 18 other knives, and you get 37 of this and 43 of that, all for the low, low price of... There you go. You guys have washed them before. And they'd be talking about how your life, these, these knives are going to make your life better. This OxyClean, whatever it is, this is going to make, you need this. You want this. You absolutely have to have this because this is going to make everything about your life easier and better. And they would always, like, you know, do the sales pitch. And then at the end of the sales pitch, right before they gave you the number on the screen, what would they say? But wait. Man, you guys are really good. But wait, there's more. You don't get that much. You get, well, double your order if you call the next 30 minutes. We'll double your order. Because everybody needs 3,000 knives to come in a box all at one time, right? And if that wasn't enough, then they'd give you the last little piece. You guys remember those things that's like you take an orange and you take this little thing and you jam it into the orange and then there's like a spout on the end and you can squeeze. Does anybody else remember that? They would give those as like the free extra prize, right? Maybe you've been to the fair, like this happened to us, we're at the fair, you're walking through the expo hall, and it's like, oh, I think I need that. Yes, you do. Come in, let me tell you why you need that, right? We've got some microfiber cloths that we've had for a long time, because we had to go to the expo hall at the fair, of course, right? Sales pitches. Like, we're all familiar with sales pitches. If you sat through a timeshare sales pitch or anything like that, we're familiar with sales pitches. You need this, you want this, you have to have this, this is going to make everything about your life better. I'd like to tell you this morning that sales pitches are great for knives and OxyClean, but sales pitches are terrible when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. 
But what has happened in American churches is that we've turned the presentation of the gospel, the call to follow Jesus, into a this is going to make your life better sales pitch. One author said it this way, the American church has made it easier to follow Jesus than Jesus made it to follow Jesus. Think about that, right? I joked at Easter about, you know, churches that give away iPads and cars and all those things at, at Easter, right? But we've kind of done that, and, and when I say we, I'm talking about like collectively, like the church, Christians in general, have made coming to Jesus this big, this idea of, of come and make a decision and say yes to Jesus as if he's like just waiting with bated breath for you to maybe possibly join his team, and he hopes so much, and he'll be so lucky if you join his team, and you say yes to Jesus, and we've focused so much on making decisions that we've forgotten that Jesus came to make disciples, right? That's what he's going to address in these little short parables in Luke 14, 25 through 33, is what it actually costs to follow Jesus. And what I hope we all see this morning is, is I hope that we will realize that, that maybe some of us have signed up for something, and we thought we signed up for one thing, but really we haven't signed up at all. Right? Maybe we thought that we accepted Jesus and made this decision for Jesus. And maybe some of us are going to realize, like, we never really did that at all. Because we're going to see what Jesus calls us to. And so as we look at these verses, again, um, Jesus is going to tell us really three, especially, different things um, that we can see and that need to be true of our lives if we're going to call ourselves his followers. And so Luke 14, 25 through 33, and we'll start in verses 25 through 27, where Jesus is going to say this, that our relationship with Jesus must be in a class by itself. Like, my relationship with Jesus must be in a class by itself. And we'll read starting in verse 25. Luke 14, 25 says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And I want to stop, and I want to have you think about that. Because that is the definition of success in, most, in many American churches. We've said before that we have to be careful that that's not our definition of success at Puyallup Community Baptist Church. But just kind of by the way that our culture works, whether it's in business, whether it's in church, in a variety of different areas, people equate growth in numbers with success. Jesus had great success in drawing crowds. I said if Jesus had been around today, Jesus would have been amazing in these like social media contexts, wouldn't he? Can you imagine like Jesus as a, like a blogger? Jesus as a YouTuber, right? Like, TikTok Jesus would have blown up. You want to talk about going viral? Do you think that, like, you know, take a Lunchable and multiply it and feed it a, feed a baseball stadium, right? You think that wouldn't have gone viral? People are posting that. It's blowing up all over the place, right? And the disciples are over there. You know a couple of them are trying to monetize. Like, Jesus, how can we monetize? Like, we got to do some ads. we got to figure this out. It's going to be amazing. There's a guy named Philip. He would have been the first one. Trust me, okay? But at the end of the day, like, Jesus had, like, material success, as we would call it, as they would have called it back in that day, that Jesus was drawing great crowds. But Jesus wasn't looking for fans. Jesus was looking for followers. You know the difference, right? Fans are those guys who love the Mariners and love the Seahawks when they're winning and going to championships. Followers are the ones who have been following him through, you know, like the 2000s. Right? The Mariners. They followed the Mariners through the tooth. Oh, those are followers. Those are people that are dialed in. 
And we have this weird misconstrual of what a follower means in our culture today. Why is that? Because all you have to do to follow somebody is this. Watch, this is, this is hard. Click. Can you do that? Click. Right? Or if you're on your phone, you don't, have to, you don't even have to work that hard. You just have to go. Right? I want to be your follower. Huh. Yes. I'm now your follower. Right? And we get this idea that the more followers, the better. And the more people follow me, and the more people retweet and repost, and the more people love the stuff that I put online, the more I go viral, the more followers I have, the more successful I am. And that's counter to what Jesus always says. As a matter of fact, the text that we're looking at today, part of this text is uh, recorded seven different times in the four gospel accounts, like different pieces of what we're going to read today, seven different times in the gospel accounts. And what it seems to be the case is that whenever Jesus was drawing a great crowd, instead of doing the things that he should have, like, you know, hiring a marketing team and really, like, you know, extending his influence, he was always thinning the crowds. As a matter of fact, John chapter 6, lots of people are following Jesus, and he's, you know, people are all excited about what he's doing. And he says, man, I'm really glad you guys are all following me. Now, to really follow me, here's what I need you to do. And he referenced, he hadn't even given us communion yet, but he referenced it in advance. He said, if you really want to be my disciples, you need, to, you, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. And it's, the text records that a whole lot of people were like, we are out. That is weird. That just got freaky and cult-like. We're gone, right? And it says that many people stopped following because they found his words hard to understand. I want us to understand that Jesus is not looking for a lot of fans. Jesus is looking for true followers of him. And he's going to talk about what that is going to cost us. So in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And look, last week I gave you a verse to weaponize against people that you don't want to have over for dinner. You guys remember that verse? If you were here... It was the one, it's like, don't invite your friends and family to dinner, invite the other people. Some people want to weaponize this, right? Like, see, honey, the text says I'm supposed to hate you, so take out the trash and make your own dinner. We kind of misunderstand this sometimes, but here, here's the idea. Uh, in English, in the English language, we often uh, speak in hyperbole, right? We, we will exaggerate our language, and people know, like, oh, that's an exaggeration because we're trying to make a, make a point. It's not like exaggerating numbers to try to make ourselves look better, but we'll say something, and we'll exaggerate something to make a point. Well, they did the same thing here, and as a matter of fact, this is a pretty familiar uh, Semitic uh, hyperbole. So like the languages of Jesus' day, not just in Hebrew, but in other languages, you can go back and look and you can see that people use this regularly um, as like a literary device to, to, to get people's attention. Jesus isn't saying like physically shun, physically hate your spouse and your relative. Scripture's clear about those relationships in other places. What he's doing is he's talking about like a degree of commitment. This is a comparative kind of thing. He's not talking about like a level of emotion. He's talking about like a degree of comparison, a degree of, of commitment. Like you love, take, take the most loving relationship that you can think of, your spouse, your kids, the most loving relationship you can think about, that should, we would say it something like this, that should pale in comparison 
to your relationship with Jesus, your love for Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? So when you're reading in this text, and it says he must hate his family, Matthew 10 says it this way, whoever loves his family more than me is not worthy of being my disciple. So all of our other relationships should come pale in comparison to our relationship with Jesus. And here's why that's important. If my relationship with Jesus, if Jesus doesn't have like relational supremacy in my life, whatever other relationship goes in that spot actually becomes an idol, right? I commit relational idolatry. You know how easy it is to commit relational idolatry. Think about it like this. You love your kids. I'm looking around the room. Most of you love your kids. Or better yet, you love your grandkids. Right? Oh, now some of you, oh yeah, okay. Kids, right? How many of you own the shirt? If I knew grandkids were this fun, I would have had them first. A couple of you have that shirt? Yeah. Dick and Miriam, I know, right? See? It's good. <laughs> but take your relationship with your kids. Here's where, like, tons of parents go, right? Maybe it's a parent that's like, man, I had a rough life. I had a rough, rough uh, background and upbringing, and I want better for my children. That's a good thing, right? But when you take your child, and you put them on the pedestal, and you say, your well-being is the most important thing in my life. I want you to have all the experiences that I didn't have. I want you to have all the things that I didn't have. I want you to have all the friends that I didn't have. I wasn't that cool when I was a kid. I'm just working on myself right now. And I want you to be cool. And I'll do anything that I can to make you happy and cool and make your life great and amazing and better. What we are doing is we're putting our child on the altar and offering them as a sacrifice. Like that becomes our idol. And rather than Jesus being supreme and being Lord of my life, my kid becomes Lord of my life. We do this with spouses, like, right? Like you're single. I want a relationship. I need a relationship. I have to have a relationship. Any relationship will do. Give me a spouse. Give me, give me, give me, give me. God brings that person into your life. Yes, they're going to complete me. Oh, no, they're not. Right? Married people, can I get a witness? No, they're not. But you're like, they're going to complete me. They're going to take all the bad stuff in my life and make it go away. And all the good stuff in my life, they're just going to magnify it like a magnifying glass. Can I submit to you that making your spouse your functional savior is a recipe for disaster in marriage? Right? Because what you do is you harness that spouse or you harness that kid or whatever. You, you put this weight on their shoulders that no human being was ever intended to carry. Uh, by, saying like, by saying that my relationship with that person is the most important thing in my life, more important than Jesus. And some of us think we're serving Jesus by doing that, right? But what Jesus says is all of my other relationships should pale in comparison to my relationship with Jesus. And here's how it's supposed to work. That when I prioritize my relationship with the Lord, and I follow Him, and I live my life by His values, and my identity comes from Him, all of a sudden that my, my identity isn't like, how good am I as a parent? 
And when my kids are having a great day or a great week, I feel great about myself because I'm such a great parent. And then when my kids are having a bad day or a bad week, then I feel terrible about myself because I'm such a terrible parent, right? Pride and despair over and over and over again. When my identity comes from Christ, those other relationships can fluctuate as they will, and I still remain strong because my foundation's in the right place. In addition to that, when I prioritize my relationship with Jesus, do you know what it does to all those other relationships? You think it makes them worse? You think you're like, I am going to love Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus and live my life by Jesus' values, and he's like, well, that's great. Your whole, all your other relationships are going to be terrible. No, usually as I pursue Jesus, it impacts the other relationships in my life, right? I'm a better husband to my wife when I'm following Jesus and when I'm like having some rough times. I'm a better father to my kids when I'm prioritizing my relationship with Jesus. And at the end of the sermon, we'll talk like really specifically about how I can do that. But I want us to understand that like if we're really going to be followers of Jesus, it means that relationship with Jesus is in a class all by itself. He continues in the next few words in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. We, we talk a lot about like bearing your cross, and we understand that that was a symbol of like shame in that culture, and that to bear the cross was to say that you were going to identify yourself with Jesus and, and walk the difficult path. But I want you to focus on a couple of other words in there that maybe kind of get left to the side. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me. Did you know that following Jesus will change your direction? Right? Like following Jesus will change the direction of your life. That's the testimony of my life. I just wanted to play soccer. Like I went to high school and I loved soccer and I went to college so that I could play soccer. And I thought, like, I'm just going to play soccer. I'm going to be a professional soccer player. I'll live in some other part of the world, and I'm going to play soccer, and that's going to be my life, and it's going to be amazing. And then I went to college, and I started playing soccer. But then I started seeing, like, what God had done in the lives of different people. Chapel speakers got up and opened God's Word and proclaimed God's Word. And then it changed my life. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a quote at the very end of the sermon. So you'll know we're done when I give you the quote, so just wait for that, right? But I heard this quote first sitting in a chapel service 25 years ago by a man who was preaching, and I was like, I want to do that with my life. Like, following Jesus changes your direction. Many of you could give testimony of that. I thought I was going this way, and then I started following Jesus, and you know what? I started going this way. And maybe for some of us, we need to let Jesus start changing our direction a little bit more. Right? Maybe for some of us, we need to stop. And the point of the sermon today will be like to say, Jesus, what direction do you want me to go in? Because I've kind of like been going my own direction. And I really realize that following you means that you get to set the direction. Like I don't get control of the GPS to my life. That Jesus gets to do the inputting. And I just follow the little line. He says, who does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says twice that they cannot be his disciple. Verse 26 and verse 27, he uses that interesting phrase, you cannot be my disciple. And so, like, I want to clarify something I think is really important here. I think sometimes it's easy to get the idea that you have, like, over here you have, like, Christians, right? Like your garden variety Christians, you know, those people. 
they have a job and they have a family and they have hobbies and they're like really busy and so like they, they got an hour or so an hour and 15 on Sunday and they're Christians and and that's like here and then like over here you got those people who are like you know they're like really Christians and they like serve at church and maybe some of them are even like, you know, they have titles that go along with their name. And they, they go here. And then like way over here, you have like pastors. And they're like the special forces. And they're the elite, the green berets. And I love that idea. I really do. Like I've always been a wuss at all that stuff. I love the idea of being a green beret. Here's the problem. It's not biblical, right? Like we get this idea that Jesus has classes of Christians Like your garden variety Christian that comes on Sundays You're one who's like more involved and like you know really loves Jesus And then the pros, okay Wipe that all out of our mind, okay When Jesus is talking about this, here's what he's saying You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple, okay I think as, as like, you know, 20, 21st century, 20th century Probably 19th century is where it started uh, but Western cultures got this idea that there was like Christian and then there was disciple And I've even read some stuff that actually has said that It's just not there If you follow the terminology through the New Testament Every time he's talking about a disciple He's just talking about anybody who's really, truly chosen to follow Jesus Anybody who would, we would call a Christian You can't be a Christian and not be a disciple so lest we hear this count the cost stuff and think like that's cool for like you know the pros But i'm kind of like here i'm not sure I, I don't have like the time and energy to give to that I'll just be your basic christian Let's wipe those those categories out of our minds and our thought process, right? Because we want to know what we're signing up for before we sign up for it You cannot be my disciple verses 28 and following maybe you're wondering by the way like we're we're doing parables like where, where's the parable part? Right? Are we going to get a story? Some of you are story people. I like, I like the story. Give me the story. This is where the story comes in. And it's a little bit different than some of the ones that we've seen. He's actually going to tell two kind of little, real little short word pictures here. And that will be our parable. And here's what these verses in 28 through 32 are going to show us. It's going to show us that I must count the cost of both decision and discipleship. Okay? If I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, count the cost of both the decision and the discipleship. Look at verse 28 For which of you desiring to build a, a tower Does not first sit down and count the cost And that day they built towers for security purposes They had fields, farmers had fields, people had fields They'd build a tower, send a sniper up there And then that would be their job Some of you, you would love that job uh, Being the sniper in the tower But they'd build a tall tower to protect their investments in addition to that, sometimes they would build towers for storage and, and storing things in it. So there were security purposes for why they built the towers. But he says, none of you would go out and, and you know, go to Home Depot and start buying a bunch of lumber and say, I think, I think I'm going to build this tower and just go and randomly buy a bunch of lumber and then go out and start building the tower because he says as he finishes it, verse 29, otherwise when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying... This man began to build and was not able to finish, right? You can imagine that. We're working on a building project here at the church. At least that's what I'm told. Chris, we're working on a building project, right? We got ourselves a building project going. We're going to remove this wall. We're going to eventually add more seating into our auditorium. And even better, we're going to have new bathrooms. Can somebody just say amen, right? Guys, 
You're not going to have to walk all the way down the hall past the children's ministry and go in there and wonder if there's a toilet that hopefully works every once in a while, right? So we've got these big plans. What I want you to imagine is this. Can you imagine, like, we've got some really good guys, right? We've got Chris Berry's working on it. Dave Ringler's working on it. Mike Arnold is working on it. I think they bring you in on it every once in a while for consulting purposes, I'm sure. But can you imagine if these guys were like, that sounds like a good idea. Let's just do that. And they just got their sawzalls and their chainsaws and all that stuff, and they just started tearing stuff apart. Now, we don't need to go down to the city and deal with that because that's just too much, right? Let's just tear stuff apart. And they tear all this out back here and whatever, and then they just tear all that out back there. Like, we're going to have some new bathrooms. Aren't we all excited? And we're all pumped. And like the first week we show up and there's no bathrooms back there. And the second week and the third week and you're walking back there, it's like, I got to go, and there's nothing there. And like the fourth week you walk back, there's just a row of honey buckets, right? And you go to Chris, you're like, Chris, what's going on? He's like, hey, we ran out of money. Like, here's the plans. Like, it looks amazing, right? We've got these really cool plans. We ran out of money, and all we got is the honey buckets, okay? So just make do, and it's going to be great, right? You think that uh, we're going to have a lot of confidence in our deacons at that point? No, right? That's what he's talking about here. Like, who would take on a building project before they actually count up, what am I getting into? How much is this going to cost me? What am I going to have to get in terms of permits? And what am I going to have to pay in terms of lumber? And what's the labor going to look like? And really counting the cost. And, and then he adds to that a, a different metaphor, a different story. Verse 31, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. These two parables, word pictures, are teaching us one point. You must not make a decision to follow Jesus without understanding the cost of following Jesus. You must not make a decision to follow Jesus without understanding the cost of following Jesus. Understand what you're getting yourself into, is what Jesus is saying. Great crowds are following, and people are excited. Isn't this amazing? This is this Messiah that we've been waiting for. And Jesus is like, if you really follow me, the path is going to be long, and it's going to be arduous. There's going to be a lot of difficulty, and I don't want a bunch of fans who are just going to fall away at the first sign of weakness. I don't need a bunch of fans who are just going to run the other way when opposition comes. Jesus is building an army, not a group of people on vacation. Jesus count the cost. The truth is, as you think about decision and discipleship, is that decisions cost very little, Right? Decisions cost nothing, but discipleship costs everything. People make decisions all the time. You know people, I know people who walked an aisle or raised a hand or filled out a card or at camp threw something into a fire or whatever it was and made a decision because there was like all this excitement in the room. And about an hour later or a week later or a month later, they wanted nothing to do with it, right? We all know those situations and those people. Excitement makes decisions, but discipleship takes commitment. Think about that. Excitement makes decisions, but discipleship takes commitment. The best analogy is a wedding and a marriage. Which one's more exciting, married people, by the way? A wedding or a marriage? Which one's more exciting? Wedding. Can we just, let's be honest. 
I mean, we love being married. But you remember the excitement around the wedding day? Everybody's excited. Everybody's having fun. There's tears. Usually they're tears of happiness. Hopefully they're tears of happiness, right? Lots of fun. Lots of stuff going on. A wedding day is an exciting day. Is every day of your marriage that exciting? Anybody here? This is your opportunity, man. If your wife's not in the room, especially Chris Berry had a boy. Woo, no, just kidding. Why'd Tina just smack you? Anyway, we understand that excitement is important, right? The bride comes down on her wedding day and she's just bawling and it's not tears of joy. We got an issue. We got to have a conversation, right? Like excitement is important. Excitement makes decisions. But commitment is what's going to make that marriage last and make that marriage great. You take the wedding day and the excitement of that and you build on it and you go into that marriage with commitment. And some of you who are 50 or 60 or more years into marriage will say, yeah, the commitment is there. Is there excitement still? I sure hope so. But the commitment is there. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We don't want excitement-less Christianity. We've had too much of that, haven't we? Right? We don't want excitement-less Christianity. Drudgery. Of, oh, I've got to count the cost. It's hard, but somebody's got to do it. Oh, following Jesus. Man, my life is awful, but I'm following Jesus. Just plow through. Just trudge through. Wah, wah, wah. Right? No. There should be excitement in following Jesus. But we know that excitement waxes and wanes. Right? Some days I am pumped, I'm excited, let's go. And then other days it's tough. I like to think of it like this. On Sundays is my excitement as a Christian. On Monday through Saturday is when I need the commitment, right? It's pretty easy for me, I don't know if you knew this, to get up here and yell at you. Did you know that? Because <laughs> I love the Lord, and I love His Word, and I love studying and seeing stuff and then saying, like, God has something for us. It's not hard for me to be excited on Sunday. You know when it's hard for me to be excited? Monday morning, I'll come in here for staff meeting. All right, what are we going to talk about, <laughs> right? But that's when we need that commitment. That's what our relationship with the Lord is about, is marrying the excitement with the commitment, because excitement can make a decision. But discipleship, you guys, takes commitment. I say don't let your excitement write checks that your commitment can't cash. All right, think about that. Don't let your excitement write checks that your commitment can't cash. In other words, don't get all excited about things and run in, whether it's your relationship with Jesus or anything else for that matter, and get all excited and make this decision in the moment and then realize that you can't follow through on it with time because these stories say, we're just going to look foolish. And the second parable actually makes it, makes it look like it could be deadly to do that. Like there's a lot at stake there. So my relationship with Jesus must be in a class by itself. And not only that, I must count the costs of both making the decision and the discipleship. And then the last thing he's going to say in verse 33 is that I have to relinquish the right of ownership. Look at verse 33. It says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And again, this is another place where Jesus is, is using an intensified, a heightened, exaggerated language to make a point. Renounce all that he has. Um, there are some monastics, people who, uh, who like live in monastery, right? monks, people like that, monastic kind of people um, who take this verse extremely literally. And so they physically give everything that they have away 
in order to live in a monastery and follow Jesus. That's actually not what Jesus is teaching here. What he's talking about is this, is that to renounce means that I yield or I relinquish the right of ownership to my life. Like we had our first house and it was a little house, but we loved it. And it's where we brought all three of the kids home into that house. So when they were born, home from the hospital, you know, they, they were born at St. Joe's and we drove straight down 19th, right to our little house and university place on Locust. And, and that was our spot for nine years. And then it came time to move to Puyallup. And I can remember the day standing on that like front porch and everybody else was gone and the stuff was being moved into the house here. And it was just me and a few guys and I had to go back and do a little bit of cleanup. And I was standing there at that door and I looked back, and it was like a TV sitcom probably, you know, where you, the last episode, and you look back, and I'm like, I st- I'm not a big crier, but I started crying because I see my wife bringing our kids through the front door. I see him running around as little kids. I see, like, all the different memories that we made in this little house. And then I had to take the keys. I had to relinquish my right of ownership, right? And, and since then, a few times, we've gone back to the neighborhood and just driven through. But here's what I haven't done. We drove through, we saw a neighbor, we talked to him. Oh, that's great. How are things going at the house, whatever. And we saw the house from the outside. But what I didn't do is I didn't go up and be like, I remember the, the code to the garage. Let's see if that works, right? I didn't be like, hey, I, rem- I remember that I have this like extra key to the, the basement entrance. Let's just go in and like see what's going on, right? Because I had relinquished ownership. Like someone else now owned that house. When it talks about renouncing everything, He's talking about relinquishing ownership. And like that, that word picture kind of breaks down because once I got out of that house, I couldn't go back in, right? But in the story that Jesus is telling right here, we relinquish ownership of our life to God, but we continue to steward what God has given us in this life, right? And you'll notice a theme through a lot of the parables of this ownership and stewardship idea but that I relinquish ownership of my life to God. So it ceases to be my relationships. It ceases to be my money. It ceases to be my hobbies. It ceases to be my time and my talents and my, my, my. And I start to see all of those things as God's, that he's given me the opportunity to use for him. Like when I start to see that, I start to understand what it means to relinquish, to hand the keys over to God. The question we could ask is, like, who's holding the keys of your life, right? Who who is it that has the the keys to your life? Are you holding on to the keys, right? Maybe you let God rent your car every once in a while, but you're going to hold on to the keys to that car, and you're going to drive it yourself. It's time to relinquish the keys to God and say, God, I will drive the car for you, and here's the GPS, and you put in the destination, and I'll follow what you have to say. Like, that's what it means to be a disciple, And when he's like, well, I need you to take this turn. And you're like, that's a bad neighborhood. I don't want to go there. You go anyway. When he says, I need you to go, oh, the road is really, really rough. I don't want to go down that road because it's really, really rough. And he says, I want you to go down that road because I have some things to teach you down that road that I can't teach you down any other road. That to follow Jesus is like, Jesus, uh, you know, you've got the keys. I don't want to say Jesus take the wheel. It's like coming to my mind right now, but man, it just messes with me. But then you follow where Jesus has you going, Right? That's what it means to relinquish control. Discipleship is a lifestyle-altering commitment. We've said that following Jesus like, is a life-altering thing, but I want you to think about how it alters your lifestyle. And as we finish up today, I want to give you a few specific 
places that I think that it does that. I want you to think really clearly about counting the costs and what that looks like in some specific areas of, of life that we live. So the first one we'll talk about is career. Because career is a big one for many of us. And in secular culture, your career, a lot of times, your career determines your identity. Right? We don't ask, hey, who are you? We ask, hey, what do you do? Right? We don't say, tell me about your walk with the Lord. We say, what do you do? And a lot of times our, our career determines our identity, which means that one of the primary places for those of you who have careers, have jobs, that your cost of discipleship is going to show up is going to be in your career. Think about it like this. For many people who are truly followers of Jesus, you will make less money at your career than you would if you were not a Christian. You just need to know that. That for, for many of you or us as Christians, we will make less actual money as Christians than we would if we were non-Christians or if we were just like, you know what, I'm not going to live by the Bible. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, maybe there's a promotion that comes up, as did with a good friend of mine. And they say, we want to give you this promotion. You're an amazing worker. And the next step for you is this management position. And so um, rather than your sales position where you work during the week and then you go home every night, we want to give you this cool management position. But you're going to have to travel 20 to 25 days a month. And we're going to pay you X amount more. And it's going to be great. And lots of people in the company want this job. And this is not hypothetical. My friend looks and he's like, he's got his wife. He loves the Lord. He has his wife and he has two young daughters. And he looks at that and he says, so I go from spending most of my nights at home to spending a couple nights a week at home. And he turns down the promotion because of the fact that he values his family more than he values both the, the, the power of that position and the money. Now, a lot of people would easily justify, like, I'm going to love my kids by making more money because then I can send them to better schools and give them better things and I can give them more experiences and they might not have me, but they'll have all this stuff. And we know that that's clearly not what Scripture teaches. So as it relates to your career, guys, we may make less money than we would if we were Christians. Maybe, maybe instead of giving up the promotion, you're not even going to be offered the promotion because people know your stand on certain things. Maybe, and I've heard like actual stories of this as well, where people lose positions or lose jobs because they're not willing to do unethical things. When the boss comes and says, hey, uh, I need to come over to the side here, off the record, I need you to record this as this and not as the IRS would actually record it, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you guys, it will cost money. For some of you, maybe career is like, I don't even have a career, and maybe that's because you're following what God has for your life. Maybe some of you trained for a career, ladies, you trained for a career, you wanted a career, and you were after that career, and God laid it on your heart to say, like, I've given you these kids for this season, and I want you to raise those kids, right? Maybe that's been your call. In our own lives, my wife was like in hospital management, making more money than I could imagine making as a pastor, and realized that she was working 50 or 60 hours a week. And it was like, is this really the best thing for our family? And you know how hard that decision was? To be like, okay, she'll work a couple hours or a couple days a week instead. It's, it's going to cost. But here's what I want you to know. Counting the costs, costs. Right? And I think like we, we do this whole, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship. And so we're kind of 
we're familiar with that terminology. We're like, yep, it's going to cost. But I just I want to point out to you that counting the cost is going to cost. That's just career. What about family? What will counting the cost cost in terms of family? And I've already alluded to this a little bit, but I need you to just like, I, I want to be really clear. Your kids will miss out on things as Christian family that they wouldn't miss out on if you had different values. Your kids will miss out on some sporting events and activities. Your kids will miss out on activities and, and opportunities that consistently and constantly take them away from the family of God. Like if you're following Jesus, your kids are going to miss out. If my kid is sitting on the altar, right? If my kid is my God, I can't imagine them ever missing out on anything because it's going to damage them. I was with a group of men this week, a group of pastors, and we were eating lunch together, and we were talking about sports, and, and all of us who grew up like loving sports and playing a lot of sports, and one of the guys was like, man, I loved basketball, and I really felt like I had the opportunity as a big guy to go and to get a scholarship and play, but my parents wouldn't let me play. Uh, they wouldn't let me go to practice on Wednesday so I, because we had youth groups, so I couldn't play in the Thursday games. And he's like, it made me so mad and so frustrated. And he's like, I'm sitting here today to say thank you, Mom and Dad, because you invested in what was worth investing in. I want to tell so many parents, and it's not true of all, but so many parents, because people that are my age, like I see this all the time, your kid's probably not getting a scholarship. And, and, and most likely... Your kid's not going pro. Like, as a guy who thought, I'm going pro, right? And he ended up at a Division three Bible college. That's how good I was. I was going to go pro, D3. They can't even give scholarships, right? And that was the only phone call I got, by the way. But we have these inflated ideas of, like, this is going to be great and amazing, and it's going to happen. And meanwhile, we're, like, sacrificing them on the altar of all this stuff. If you choose... If you choose to follow Jesus, they're going to miss out on stuff. And at the end of the day, like, absolutely. I think there are ways around some of those things. I think that there are ways to have our kids involved in things, and I think it's a good thing to have. I know several of you guys have your kids involved in activities, and they need to be so that they're out there. But I think what we have to do is continue to talk about, like, where do my Christian values come into play in the midst of all that? And there is the ability for our kids to be involved in things and have impact in, in secular areas, and they should. But I just don't know that they can do that if we're not allowing God's Word to guide our lives. It's going to change your family. Counting the cost is going to cost in your family. When somebody in your family decides to do something really immoral that everybody knows is wrong, and you decide to take a stand, right? You're going to lose a, a sibling, you're going to lose a relationship with an aunt or an uncle or a child because they decide to do something completely immoral and you say, I love you, but I can't stand for that. Counting the cost costs. It's going to cost your friends. Christians, you will be excluded from some things. You will not get invited to some parties, out, outreach activity, neighborhood activities, things like that. There will be times as Christians where counting the cost is going to cost you being able to hang out with some people that maybe you'd like to hang out with. What about possessions and experiences, like the stuff that you see on Instagram? When I do what Scripture says and value the quality of life versus the standard of living, we're going to lose social media influence. You know that? 
You're like, you're going to have less stuff to post on social media. Because instead of chasing standard of living, how much stuff can I acquire and how many experiences can I have, what's going to drive our life is quality of life. And we understand that quality of life does include experiences. Go on a great vacation, enjoy yourself, take your family places, do those things. But like, what is the pursuit of my life? Am I living my whole life to, pr- to pursue a standard of living? Or am I allowing like, God to shape my quality of life? Because counting the costs, costs. And then the last one that I wrote down is, well, actually two. I just saw another one I think I probably should hit. Generous giving will mean less disposable income. I talked to somebody after the first service because I said, you know, if, if some of your secular friends knew the stuff, that, the, the money that you give, and by the way, I don't know any of that, just so that we're all aware. But if some of your secular friends like, got your giving statement at the end of the year, they'd look at me like, you're an idiot. Like, you could buy a new car with that, right? People outside the church don't understand why we would generously give, even if we don't get like a tax exemption for it. Some of you are like, wait, you can do that? Yeah. But generous giving is something that Scripture talks about to the church, to other people, that God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing. And I'm here to tell you that counting the costs, costs in your bank account. And then the last one I wrote down is personally, your time, your talents, your hobbies, all of those things. Again, none of those bad things to have, but how is God, how is my relationship with Jesus driving those things that I value? Because counting the costs, costs. And this is the moment you've all been waiting for, because it's the quote. Remember I talked about that an hour ago? The quote that I want to leave you with is this. I've said it before, and I told you it's not mine. It may not be an easy price, but it's definitely a price worth paying. I could go back down through that whole list. We could give testimony time, and you could all share. I don't think anybody's ever given things up for the Lord and then lived to regret it. Right? I don't think anybody's... I don't think my buddy gave up that promotion to spend more time with his family and he's putting his kids to bed and reading them the bible and like man i really wish i was in a hotel room by myself somewhere right people don't give up things for the lord and then live to regret it conversely what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own family what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own quality of life and happiness and joy in life it may not be an easy price guys but it's definitely a price worth paying at the end of the day today again i think we can evaluate and look and say like do i know what i signed up for when i signed up for jesus when i signed up for team jesus did i think i was just making a decision or did i really understand the cost of discipleship and maybe you're here today and you're like man i didn't really realize what i was getting into I would just hope that all of us have a better understanding of that. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're thinking about Jesus or you're watching online and maybe you've just been watching online for a while trying to figure this thing out, I just want to tell you that living for Jesus is a price worth paying. And at the end of the day, I would hope that all of us would make that decision to follow him and give our lives to him. I'm going to pray for us this morning and then we'll get uh, send you on your way. God, as we've read through your word and as we've studied through it this morning again um, I just confess as I did earlier God that this is hard stuff that like for me sometimes um, the fact that there are things that I might miss out on or that I might not be able to keep up with 
everybody else. I might not be able to keep up with neighbors or friends, or my kids might not be able to keep up with what everybody else is doing. God, that's hard uh, for me. I just pray that you would keep me on the path of following you, that the folks that have been listening to this just now would hear in your words uh, the fact that following Jesus is not always easy, but it is so, so worth it. God, I pray that as we continue to do the things that you've called us to, that we would experience the life that you want us to have. Uh, that we would experience the joy that it is in following you. Uh, that you would free us from some of those traps or some of the things that maybe we idolize people and, and hold them up. God, just help us to experience freedom today as well. We thank you again for the opportunity to hear from these teachings. Of